Matthew chapter 25 is where we're going to be this morning. So if you would take your Bible and open up to Matthew chapter 25, whether you have it in front, hard copy, or on your phone and you want to pull that out. The verses are on the screen behind me as well as we go through this time. And if you forgot to bring your Bible or you don't have access to a Bible, let us know. We will get you one. But if you're here this morning, we want you to be able to access and see the scripture. So I have most of it up here behind me. But if you have the Bible, I encourage you to open it up in front of you as we are engaging with God's word this morning. A couple of notes going into this time. First is, we're going to have a time about three quarters of the way through where we're going to stop and watch a missions video that comes out of some scripture that we're reading and we're going to take up the offering during that time when we do that try your best not to mentally check out on me don't put everything up because we're going to come back after that offering and and challenge ourselves god what do we do based on your word this morning what are you calling us to do and then at the end we're not going to have a final song we're going to pray i'm going to pray over you ask you to pray right where you are And then the service will be dismissed, and that's on purpose because from the scripture this morning, we have a scripture that comes out of God's grace and leading us to action, and we want to say, okay, we're going to leave this place and we're going to go and be obedient to what God has called us to do, whatever that looks like in, in your life. But at the end of the service, hear me as clearly as you can, if you need someone to pray with, we are up here at the front. Jaron will be up here, I'll be up here, Jim will be up here. We want to pray for you. The response to God's word does not end when we dismiss and I say amen and people head out the back door. If you're here this morning, I'm going to say this several times during the service, but if you're here this morning and you are unsure about your relationship with the Lord, you are unsure about your eternity with God, do not leave this room without talking to someone about that. You may not leave with all the answers, you may not leave with complete certainty, But we are going to talk about faith, and we want you to have a chance to talk to somebody else. Don't leave this place saying, man, I wish I would have talked to somebody. When we wrap up, we are here. We want to minister to you. We want to pray over your family. Whatever that looks like, we want to hear God's word together, and then we want to respond. Matthew chapter 25, we're going to start in 31, read through 40, and then we'll do some bigger picture things after that. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. May God bless the reading of his word. So this last week, 
I read a book, I was working through a book, I say I read a book, I listened to someone else read it to me while I was doing things, it was, a, it was an audio book, but I was working through a book, and I was reminded of something that I had not thought about in a long time, and it was the preparations that were made by a lot of people before Y2K. Now, if you were born uh, recently, Y2K is going to be not even a memory for you, and for most of it's a distant memory, but leading up to Y2K, there were a lot of conspiracy theories, there were a lot of feelings that maybe the world was going to end or something dramatic was going to happen in the year 2000 and all the computers were going to mess up. If Y2K doesn't mean anything to you, referring to the year 2000, remember that like 20 years ago? Uh, the year 2000, all the computers were going to mess up and the world was going to fall apart and leading up to that, a lot of people made some pretty extreme preparations, gathering food and fuel and even developing shelters where they were going to be. And this book was about a girl who grew up in Idaho in a family that took Y2K preparations very seriously. They were preppers in the sense that they buried huge fuel tanks in the ground. They had developed food supplies that were going to last them through whatever happened. Obviously, none of that came to pass, but we still have a lot of people that live in that way preparing. Here's the transition to what we're talking about this morning. People put a lot of work into preparing for the end of the world. We live in Oklahoma. If a snowstorm comes, people do a lot of preparation with bread and milk, awkwardly. But uh, we, we understand a thing or two about prepping in, in Oklahoma. People prep for the end of the world, or they prep for a disaster. But Jesus, in these words this morning from Matthew 25, asks us to think about what does it look like to prepare for his coming? What does it really look like to prepare for the end of the world? What does it look like to prepare for eternity? It doesn't look like gathering things for yourself. It looks like giving it away to others. And it doesn't look like isolating yourselves from others. It looks like drawing near and caring for those who are most in need. The verses this morning are going to teach us and show us what does it look like to prepare our lives, to live now in light of what's going to happen in eternity. Look at verse 31. Verse 31, we have this phrasing here that when the Son of Man comes in his glory, that's Daniel 7 language going on in the background. We have a lot of uh, things coming to fulfillment at this point. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. For much of Matthew, much of Matthew's gospel, Jesus has sat down to teach. Now, at the very end of this fifth teaching section, he is sitting down to judge. Don't miss the connection. There's so much relationship between the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, and what happens in this last teaching section of Matthew, very intentional connections between that first teaching section and this last teaching section. There Jesus sat to teach, here he sits to judge. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, that people will be gathered before him. Now to understand what's going on here, I want to back up just for a second and show you a slide that gives you an idea of the backdrop that's been happening in chapters 24 and especially 25. There are two key themes that run through the end of 24 and end of 25. And there's these themes. One is be ready for the end. 
Be ready for eternity. Be ready for the coming judgment. Jesus tells a famous parable about ten virgins, ten young women, five of whom were ready when the bridegroom came, and five who were not. And Jesus gets to the end of that parable, and he says, be watchful. Be ready. There is a stress in these verses that tell every one of us, you need to think about the future. You need to consider eternity. You need to consider your own mortality, the own reality of death that every one of us faces, the coming of Christ again one day. We have to consider this. And Jesus says, be ready. How do we prepare for that? We prepare in just the way that Jaron has led us this morning. That our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is not in our performance or our perfection. Our hope is in Christ. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus was born as the one who would save his people from their sins. But we must be ready by turning to him. And there's that stress that's laid here in these verses. But the second stress is that this preparation involves being a faithful, wise, and active servant now. So hear me out. Hear me carefully and clearly because I'm going to try to make sure my language is precise. But how we live our lives now is a picture of our readiness to stand before the Lord one day. I am not saying that we live our lives now in such a way that we earn our standing before the Lord We're not required to do X, Y, and Z in order to be saved and stand before the Lord. But Jesus is crystal clear in his teaching that if you want to know your readiness to stand before him one day, it is found in the way that we live our lives today. How we live now is preparation for what is going to come. There's two dangers, there's two extremes here. One is that you would walk away with this guilt, with this feeling of, have I done enough to stand before the Lord? You would walk away feeling like, what else do I need to do? What else? We'd miss the point if that's what you'd go away with. This is not about what more do I need to do to stand before the Lord. And at the other extreme is this feeling of, you know what? I took care of the faith question a long time ago. I was baptized a long time ago. I said a prayer a long time ago. I don't mind being connected to the church. I know it's an important thing to do. But in reality, faith doesn't make a huge impact on your everyday life. And in some sense, you're okay with that. Some of you this morning need to be be reminded of the hope that you have in Christ. And some of us this morning need to be challenged to say, true faith works itself out in the way that we live. I want you to see this from these verses. Don't take that my word on it. Let's look at these verses. Verse 32. So here's what's going to happen. Jesus says, before him will be gathered all the nations. All peoples will be gathered before him. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now, just a quick note on here to understand why is this separation of sheep and goats uh, a big deal? What's going on here? In this time period, in this part of the world... It was difficult for most people to distinguish between sheep and goats. Like if you just looked at the animal, you wouldn't immediately determine is that a sheep or a goat. Now, agriculture, our part of the world, 2020, you channel your inner FFA or 4-H, like you're going to be able to tell is that a sheep or a goat. 
But the livestock of this time and this part of the world that Jesus is speaking into, it was not immediately evident if this animal was a sheep or a goat. It required a shepherd. It required someone with insight to be able to determine. What Jesus is saying is when you look at people around you, it may not be immediately evident whether or not that person is a sheep or a goat. That that's not our judgment to make, that's his judgment to make. Verse 33, he will place the sheep on his right. The right was the place of honor, the place of blessing, but the goats will be on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, that God's blessings, that his goodness will be poured out on those who are deemed righteous, who are deemed blessed. Again, not because they have earned this, but because of their hope in Christ, because they've turned to him. Verse 35, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Now you see where the confusion could come in, right? With that word for. So, so come, those of you who are blessed, come and you will be in this place of honor. You will receive this eternal reward because you've done all these things. Okay, so, and so I have to do all those things in order to under, earn my standing before the Lord. Know what these are? These are indicators that you've experienced the grace and mercy and power of Christ at work in your life. When that has happened, these things will take place. When you see someone hungry, you will give them food. When you see someone thirsty, you will give them drink. When you see someone who is a stranger or an outsider or in need, your heart will be compelled to act in faith for the good of that person because of what Christ has done in your life. The word for there is a pointer toward this is what it looks like to be ready to stand before the Lord. Now watch what happens. Kind of a surprising turn. Verse 37. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison? And visit you. You see their surprise, right? This is the indicator. This is the indicator that they have not done these things to earn their salvation. They've not done these things in order to earn these rewards because they're surprised to find out it's even a big deal. <laughs> they're especially surprised to find out that it's Jesus that they've been ministering to. But look what happens in verse 40. In verse 40, the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. This is the gospel foundation. This is Jesus' teaching that connects with Paul's teaching about the body of Christ. That when we live as the people of God, when we see one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, we care for one another, we relate to one another because Christ is at work in that person. That's not just a random person, that's not just a person we happen to have a connection with. Jesus Christ is at work in that person's life, and so when we care for them, it's as if we are caring for Christ. 
when we are connected to one another, we are connected together as the body of Christ. And there's two words that stand out in this verse that are really important to understand what Jesus is teaching. It's the word least, and it's the word brothers. Or this is the type of word for brothers that means brothers and sisters. It's not male-specific. So the least and then brothers. What's Jesus saying there? He's saying that those people who are his followers, they will be driven to care for others who don't have a lot of honor, who don't have a lot of privilege. How can you tell that God's at work in your life? You want to serve people whether or not that person is important at all. Your heart is drawn to caring for people who are considered the least, people who are considered despised, people that when you care for them, no one's going to take a picture, it's not going to show up on the news, no one's going to give you any reward or accolade or recognition, but your heart is drawn to that person because you know of your own need for the Lord. You've come to the end of yourself and said, my only hope is in Christ. I am humble before the Lord, I need him, and so my heart is drawn to those who need him as well. Matthew 5, remember how that started? It started with, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who realize, I have nothing to bring, my only hope is in the goodness of God, and when I receive that, I want to share that with people in need. Specifically, though, who? My brothers. Jesus here is talking in Matthew 25 about care that is given to other believers. Now, we're not going to limit there. We're going to see how it goes beyond that. But primarily, primarily in these verses, he is talking about the care that is given to other Christians, that is given to other brothers and sisters in Christ. How do we know that? Because when this phrase is used in Matthew's gospel, it almost always refers to other Christians. Look at the next slide here, and I'll give you an example. Matthew chapter 12, 49 and 50. Stretching out his hand toward his disciples, Jesus said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So when you get to Matthew 25 that we saw earlier, and he's talking about this care that's been done to the least of these, my brothers, he's speaking about care that's been done to other believers because who are his family? Those who do the will of God. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, not everyone who calls to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Who are the Jesus people? Those who have faith in God, and they put that faith in action. That faith pours over to people around them because of what God has done in their life. What about that word least? Let me show you a couple of slides that have to do with that. Matthew 10. Whoever receives you, Jesus said, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. And whoever gives one of these little ones, even a cup of cold water because he is disciple, truly I say, he will by no means lose his reward that emphasis on the little ones, you also see in Matthew 18. If you want to read some of those opening verses to Matthew 18, you'll see that same indicator. One more slide to show you this idea in Paul's letters. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. I find this verse really helpful this morning for understanding what's happening in Matthew 25. Paul says in Galatians 10, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So the followers of Jesus, 
how are they characterized? When they see another believer, especially one who is considered the least, who is in need, they run to that person. They care for that person because that person is part of the body of Christ. That person is a brother or sister in Christ. They run to that person, but a church that is filled with that kind of love is never going to keep that kind of love to themselves. It's going to flow over into their lives. You're going to find yourself doing good for all people because you're doing good for one another. Doing good in the church does not stop us from doing good in the world. Those two are meant to go together. But what we can't pass over, what we cannot miss, is Matthew 25 is primarily about how we're called to do good for one another and to one another and how that shows the work that God has done in our lives. We'll come back around to that in just a second. Let's finish out this chapter, and then we'll, we'll walk through that. Verse 41. This is the other side of it. Then... The king will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Something interesting in the way this chapter is set up, if you still have your Bible, I don't have this on the screen immediately, but if you still have your Bible open in front of you, look back up there to verse 34 for just a second. Back in verse 34, the king says to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So for those who are honored, for the sheep, for the righteous, this kingdom has been prepared for them, and so they're called to enter that. Look down in verse 41. When he's speaking to those on the left, he says, Enter into the eternal fire prepared for whom? For the devil and his angels. I understand, I feel this emotion deeply. When we talk about hell, when we talk about eternity separated from God, I realize that's a difficult topic, a difficult doctrine. How do we make sense of that? We make sense of it because we understand God's justice and God's holiness, but notice here that separation from God, that the reality of hell was never prepared for us. What was prepared for us? The gift of the kingdom, to enter into the inheritance of the Lord, but for those who live apart from him, you enter into a reality that was never prepared for us to begin with. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 42. Why would this be the case for them? What, what about their life said this is going to happen? Verse 42. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Verse 44, then they will say, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? You get the feeling here that they're saying, oh, oh, sorry, if we'd known that was you, we would have totally helped. <laughs> if we'd have known that was you, we would have definitely stopped and provided what you needed. But because this person didn't look important or didn't look like a person of honor or no one was going to stop and take a picture for the newspaper, we didn't do that. You feel the weight of the Gospel of Matthew at this point because so much of the Gospel of Matthew, especially if you go back and read chapters 5 and 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, so much of those who were opposed to the way of Jesus they were seeking to do good. They were seeking to live religious lives for what purpose? 
that others would look at them and say, wow, look at that religious person. Man, they have faith. They're really great. They're really important. Lord, if we didn't know that was you, we would have definitely stopped. I don't know how many of you, I don't even know if the show is still on, to be honest, but there was a show for a while called Undercover Boss. This kind of feels like a version of, of Undercover Boss. Oh, if I would have known that was you, Lord, I, I would have totally acted different in that, that situation. And Jesus is trying to tell them, but it, it was me. It was me. Look what happens in the next verse. He will answer them, verse 45, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. You didn't think that person was important? You didn't think that person deserved attention? That was me. In the background of this story, I don't know about you, but I hear a lot of the Good Samaritan parable, a lot of the Good Samaritan story, that there's a person in need, and the priest and the Levite pass by on both sides and don't acknowledge the need, and then it's the Samaritan who steps in, provides that care. It feels like that parable and Matthew 25 have so many connections to one another. Let's do a quick comparison between the sheep and the goats that Jesus has laid out here in, in these verses. The goats seem to be primarily self-focused. And, and we're drawing a lot of this from thinking about the whole gospel of Matthew that we've studied over the last year that leads us to this point. But very self-focused, what's in it for me People look at me, it's a self-focus. Sheep are primarily others-focused. I don't have anybody to impress. I don't have anything to prove. I'm just here to serve Jesus. I'm, I'm looking for these people to care. Goats love, oh, love is shown to those of honor. Sheep show unconditional love. It doesn't matter what you can give me. I'm going to love you because that's how God loved me. He loved me unconditionally, so I'm going to show you love in the same way. The goats are separated from the hurting and weak, they stay away from those who are hurting and weak. The sheep are connected to the hurting and weak. They run to people in need. And I think these bottom two are kind of what I was trying to get at for sure on this comparison. The goats have what we might call a passive faith, and the sheep have what we would call an active faith. The good news, Emmaus, hear me out on this. The good news of Matthew 25 is that it sets us free from a boring, self-centered, meaningless Christianity. Matthew 25 will set you free from a boring, self-centered, meaningless Christianity. Because let's watch our own hearts. If we're not careful as religious people, we can find ourselves getting bored with church. We can find ourselves getting bored with religion. What is this all about? What am I working toward? And Matthew 25 reminds us, if we have experienced the goodness and the grace and the mercy of Jesus in our lives, it's going to flow out in thousands of ways to the people around us. My life will be about taking what God has done for me and pouring it out to the people around me. And my life as a believer is not going to be identified by whether I wear a Christian t-shirt. It's not going to be about what bumper sticker is on my car it's not even going to be about how well I keep all the religious rules that are out there. My life as a believer is characterized by the way my faith works itself out in love to the people around me. The Bible in so many places connects faith and works. Let me show you a couple of these. I just kind of want to walk through the Bible to remind us of this connection between faith and works. 
John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John 13, 35 is Matthew 25. You could write a note in your Bible next to Matthew 25. The connection here is John 13, 35. This is what those two passages are meant to connect together. How will people know that you are a follower of Jesus if you have love for one another? It begins here with how we operate as brothers and sisters in Christ. John 15, 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. How do you know that someone's a disciple of Jesus Christ? They live a fruitful life. Their life overflows with the work of God because of what God is doing in them. Not that they look religious. Not that they're good at keeping out a really good exterior. It's that God has done something in them that just grows out to people in all walks of life, but especially people in the church. Look at the next screen. Titus 3.14. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. What I love about Titus 3.14 is it comes at the end of a book that has so much gospel content. So much of the book of Titus is just this beautiful presentation of God's grace in our lives, of what Christ has done for us, and what it means to receive this. And then Paul gets to the end of that letter and he says, hey, if that's true, Let's make sure we don't waste our lives. Let's live lives where we learn to devote ourselves to good works, to meet cases of urgent need, and not be unfruitful. That's Matthew 25 working itself out in the early church through the writings of Paul. Look at the next screen. James 1, 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And then James 2. You can't read Matthew 25 without thinking about James 2. If you're ever interested in just a, a fun Bible study project to pursue, take the Gospel of Matthew, especially the Sermon on the Mount, but you can do the whole Gospel of Matthew, and look for comparisons in the Gospel of James. That will make Bible study just erupt for you. It is so much fun when you take the Gospel of Matthew and the book of James and you begin to see the, the interplay. Math, James 2.14 what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Verse 15, if a brother or sister, oh, hear Matthew 25 in this verse. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and be filled, you sound very spiritual, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? And then verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. This is the passive faith of the goats of Matthew 25. Oh yeah, I, I have faith. I'm a religious person. But there's nothing in that person's life that says their life has been transformed by the good news of Jesus. And it overflows in how they live and how they love the people around them. So the question then becomes, okay God, if that's true, I need to take a deep look at my own life. Am I prepared to stand before you? Am I, am I prepared to live this out? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to right now, if you'll stay with me, right now, we're going to watch a video about some ways that we are seeking to do this. We are seeking to put our faith in action, connected to Oklahoma Baptist, 
We're going to take up our offering. If you've got prayer cards, we're going to put those in there. And then after that, we're going to come back around and we're going to do the hard internal work of saying, based on Matthew 25, what do I need to check in my own heart? What do I need to check in my own life? Let me pray for us right now. After I pray, if you're helping with the offering, begin to take the offering up. We're going to watch this video and then I'll come right back and take us through the end of our time, okay? Let's pray together just for a moment. God, our first prayer right now is that our hearts would think about obedience to your word. God, I pray that no one will go home today thinking, I should do more so that I can earn God's love. God, you have shown your love to us through Jesus. And so we receive that. Everything we have, every dollar we give, every moment of time we have to spend, it's a gift from you. Everything we have is from you. And everything we have is for you. And so, God, as we give as a church right now, as we think about seeking to do good and make an impact on one another and the world around us, God, I pray that we would give from a place of faith, a faith of recognizing that everything we have is from you. And then, God, in the moments we have ahead, I pray that you would do a powerful work in our lives and in our church about what it means to live out these verses we've talked about this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Emmaus, let's take up that offering, watch this video, and think about the connection with Matthew 25. The New Testament clearly teaches us that the people who are most open to the gospel are people who are most aware of their own brokenness. The reality is Oklahoma is a lost state. Right here in our own backyard, there are a lot of people that need the gospel. These key areas of brokenness have to do with addiction, with foster care, poverty, and with prison. Those social problems are actually opportunities for us. Who better to meet those needs than the people of God? We have an opportunity to minister to prisoners. They need Christ just as much as anybody else. That's where he found me. There's about 9,600 kids who are in DHS custody or in foster care. One family per church, there would be a waiting list of people, not a waiting list of children. Arcadia Trails is an addiction recovery center. We're introducing them to Christ in a different way. We are blessed greatly to be a part of the BGCO. We use our hunger fund dollars to buy food on Wednesday nights and to buy food on vacation Bible school. That's all it's used for. Edna McMillan State Missions Offering is a very tangible expression of the common bond we have in Christ and the common mission that we have to advance the gospel. And so small churches can partner with big churches as we work together to advance the gospel. The fact that Oklahoma Baptists would take their state missions offering and say, we care enough about this need, we're going to put dollars behind it, I think speaks volumes of the heart of Oklahoma Baptists. I am grateful for Oklahoma Baptists and their commitment to giving. So ministries like ours not only survive, but thrive. It changes lives. I know for, for people like me. My prayer is that this year's state missions offering will not only raise funding, but it will raise awareness. Every church can't meet every need, but every church could meet a need. Maybe it's feeding one hungry child. Maybe it's one foster family. Maybe there's a prison in the county or nearby. God has an open door to enter in and advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. So 
So one of my, one of the things I enjoy the most about being a part of Emmaus is being a part of a church that says we see needs around us. We want to meet those, and we want to meet those physical needs. We also want to meet the spiritual needs of what it means to prepare our hearts for eternity. So right now, I want to show you a slide with some questions that we need to work through as a church, that we want to work through personally. Here's the first question. What is my response to God's glory and judgment? Do I consider eternity? Here's where I'd ask you to look in your own heart and your own life. Do I understand what it means to stand before a holy God and to know that no matter what I bring, that I come from a place of brokenness and rebellion and sin, that my only hope is in Jesus Christ, that he has done for me what I could never do for myself. It's so easy to get caught up in the day-to-day reality of life that we don't think about what it looks like to stand before the Lord. We don't think about the reality of our own death. We don't think about the reality of his coming. We don't think about what that looks like. But I am begging you to think about that this morning. If you are unsure about your relationship with God, you are unsure about what it means to stand before him in eternity, please do not leave this room this morning without talking to somebody. We'll be up here at the front. We want to talk with you. We want to pray with you. We want to help you think through some of the questions you have or the things you're facing. Even better, you don't need to come up here to the front. You're surrounded by people who their greatest joy this morning before they go home would be to tell somebody else about the good news of Jesus. Just find somebody you know, somebody you respect, somebody you love, and ask them, say, I really need to talk about my relationship with the Lord. We have to start there. And then when we consider that, when we think about eternity, when we think about our relationship with the Lord, is my faith, is my claim to faith in Jesus, is it passive or is it active? And this is a really important question for Oklahoma in 2020 because a lot of us maybe grew up in church. We have a faith either from our family background or we have a faith from maybe a time that we were baptized as a kid or we have a faith where, yeah, I don't mind being connected with church. I do that every once in a while. But let's be honest, that faith doesn't impact the way we live day to day. And Matthew 25 says, those who stand before the Lord have a faith that lives itself out in the way that we show God's love to others. We need to ask the question, if my faith is passive, why is that the case? Why is my faith not working itself out in the way that we talked about in these verses earlier? And then a really important question that we're going to slow down and take just a moment on is, do I consider church a people or a place? I think I wrote it the other way. Do I consider church a place or a people? When I think about being connected to the body of Christ, when I think about being connected to brothers and sisters in Christ, when I think about the church, do I think about that as a place I go, like it's over there and I go to that place every once in a while, or is this the people of God in action? I want to read to you, couple of paragraphs from a book called Something Needs to Change, A Call to Make Your Life Count in a World of Urgent Need by David Platt. This book, Something Needs to Change, I would commend to you. It's it's a powerful book to make us think about what does it look like to live out our faith. And David is talking about his experience of walking through the Himalayan mountains and visiting these different villages. And he talks about going to one particular church in the Himalayas. And here's what he says. He says, after our time in God's word, so David has preached to this little church in the Himalayas, he says, after our time in God's word, the people began to share their needs with one another. 
One older woman in the corner of the room mentioned a physical challenge she was facing, and a woman on the other side of the room offered to help take care of it. A young man told of someone he recently shared the gospel with who is now persecuting him and threatening to harm his family. In response, an older man in the church shared how the same thing had happened to him, and he encouraged the pastor to encourage both of them. That led to a couple who told about how they had shared the gospel with another family and how that family had believed in Jesus, so they were thinking about starting a new church in that family's home in a nearby village. And then listen to what David said. As I watch what is happening in this room and listen to these conversations between brothers and sisters in the family of God, it hits me. This is it. The church as God designed it to be, a people fearlessly holding to God's word while selflessly sacrificing to share God's love amid need around them. This kind of church can change the world. And it's surprising how simple it is. Not easy, but simple. This church in the Himalayas has so little of the things you and I think about when it comes to church in our culture. They don't have a nice building. They don't have a great band. They don't have a charismatic preacher. They don't have any programs for kids. They just have each other, God's word in front of them, and God's spirit among them, and apparently, that's enough. I wonder if that would be enough for us. What is God calling us to be as a church? Here is one indicator that God is at work in your life. One indicator that God is at work in your life is church is no longer a place you just go once a week, but it's a picture of God's grace being worked out in your life day by day. That you, when you think about church, you immediately think about people that you are caring for and they are caring for you. When you think about church and gathering on Sunday morning, the last thing you think about when you think about gathering on Sunday morning is to be a part of listening to some guy talk. What you think about when you gather on Sunday morning is who you can pray for. When God's spirit moves in our church, you won't be able to walk through the hallways because you'll be tripping over people praying for one another. That when you think about gathering as a church, you will think about, God, who am I called to encourage today? Who am I called to care for? Who has a need that you've called me to meet this week? That when we gather together, we lift up our voices together, we wrap our arms around one another, and we say God has loved us, and we are going to share that love with one another. And as that happens in a church, there's no way you can confine that just to that church it's gonna spill over into the world around us. You say, that's a really self-centered way to live. No, it's not. Because when God's people gather in the name of Jesus and they love one another, you can't stop that love from spreading to the world around us. Would you bow your heads with me right now? Would you think, right where you are, first of all, about your relationship with the Lord? God, do I understand what it means that in my sin, the wages of sin is death. God, that left to my own, I'm separated from you, not because you are bad and evil, but because I have rebelled against you. God, you are good and holy. 
but you have made a way for us to be reconciled to you, and that is through Jesus. If you are here this morning, and you need to be made right with God, you are unsure about eternity before the Lord, I pray that right now, you would cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, I trust you. I need you to save me. I believe that Jesus died for my sins and rose again. If you're here this morning and your experience of faith, if you were asked to talk to somebody else about your faith, all you really have to talk about is an experience that happened years and years ago or, yeah, I'm a person of faith, but it really doesn't make a big impact in my life. Can I ask you, what kind of faith is it that the God of the universe would send his son to save us and there would be no change in our lives. God set us free this morning from a boring, self-centered, meaningless approach to Christianity. God, you have created us for so much more. God, you have put this church here. God, you have brought our lives together for so much more and we will not settle for less than that. God, give us a faith that pours out in love for one another. God, let Emmaus not be defined by a building or by one gathering per week. God, let us be defined as a people who live out the gospel with courage every day. God, would you do that work in our lives? Would you do that work in our church? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.